Well, happy Palm Sunday once again. And I want to just acknowledge, as we did yesterday, but uh, take time again to acknowledge all of those who uh, volunteered and who who came out to help and then who came out to enjoy all of the festivities of uh, yesterday's uh, Spring Family Festival. Um, It's hard to imagine that this worship center was was filled with bouncy houses and there were crafts and and, uh, you should have seen Sweet Two if you haven't seen it on the uh, the church Instagram page covered with balloons. So a lot of work went into that, a lot of planning and we very much appreciate uh, that effort and we we pray that uh, it was a blessing to everyone involved. Pastor John mentioned uh, in calling us to worship this morning that the Lord is indeed uh, close to those who are weary and tired. Uh, He is also close to those who are uh, brokenhearted and who are in need of comfort. And so as we come to uh, our opening prayer uh, for uh, the the message this morning, I want us to keep in mind we are aware of, of tragedies that have taken place in Nashville, but also across the country, families who have been affected by uh, gun violence and other kinds of abuse. Uh, and on Palm Sunday, it's important to remember that Jesus came for moments like this to offer us comfort, peace, assurance, and the hope that there is ultimately going to be justice in this world. So there is a, a prayer that I want to read as we begin uh, this morning from uh, Augustus Toplady, who wrote the hymn, uh, Rock of Ages. And so please uh, bow your heads and join in prayer with me. And Toplady writes uh, this prayer, With what shall we come before you, O Lord? Or bow ourselves in your presence, O you most high? Cause us to come to you in faith, mentioning no other name, pleading no other righteousness, and trusting in no other atonement than the name, righteousness, and atonement of your blessed Son in our adorable mediator, Jesus Christ. In him we desire to be found. Through him we hope for favor with you and acceptance in your sight. Blessed be your goodness for the mercies of the day, for the blessings of your providence, the comforts of your spirit, and the privileges that we enjoy. And bless now also, Lord God, the preaching and the hearing of your word as we celebrate and remember with great joy and great hope uh, the entering of Jesus into Jerusalem and the preparation that it brings with regard to his ultimate mission of becoming the savior for our sins. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, The elders and I gathered uh, earlier this week, we were discussing... The, the text that I would be preaching on this morning, and we all had one common um, agreement, one common sentiment, that, uh, which is that the, the story of Palm Sunday um, is very familiar. If you have grown up in church, or even if you have only attended church uh, occasionally, you are at least aware of the events surrounding Palm Sunday, and the very familiarity of uh, Jesus entering Jerusalem, riding on a, a colt, the fold of a donkey. And because the story in and of itself is so well known, it's possible to pass over the meaning, the importance, and the drama packed into the events of that day. The story of Palm Sunday reeks with irony and paradox. And it is, I think, so familiar, we can overlook those ironies and miss the paradoxes, the importance that they have in helping us understand the nature of the story. Um, There needs to be a sense, and we read the story again, of sort of capturing that there's more going on here than meets the eye. 
that there is behind everything happening on Palm Sunday, the, the greater reality of God's plan of salvation. For example, you consider that when Jesus entered Palm Sunday, he did much more than fulfill several Old Testament prophecies, which he did. We read one in, in the text from Zechariah 9, and we, I, I preached on that when we were going through this series of Zechariah. But there's also this consideration that I think gets easily overlooked or just assumed when we read the story, that by entering Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, Jesus is in fact carrying out a plan that was conceived before the creation of the world. That this was just not a random incident. This wasn't just Jesus deciding one day, I'm now going to, after three years of, of fruitful ministry, of dramatic ministry, of impactful ministry, I'm just now going to choose this day. This was a, a plan that was conceived before the creation of the world, conceived between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that the events then surrounding Palm Sunday uh, really do reveal a greater reality behind all the events. And really that greater reality is God's plan of salvation, that behind everything that happens on this day, in fact, it, everything that happens in life is part of God's purpose for his creation. That whatever takes place, there is always the greater reality of God's will. So when we look at uh, Matthew 21, 1 to 11, there are other accounts, obviously, in the, in the three other Gospels. But we're going to look at Matthew's and, and look at it from this standpoint. That, first of all, Jesus enters Jerusalem to bear a cross, not a crown. That the crowd worshipped Jesus for the right, uh, the right way, but they did it for the wrong reason. And that Jesus is, is more than just a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So look, look at verses 1 to 5 and see here that Jesus entered Jerusalem to bear a cross, not a crown. Matthew tells us that when they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, this entourage that is following him as well, when they came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place, says Matthew, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9, 9 to 12. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the, the, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, it should be obvious, well, I'll state it anyway, Jesus didn't ride a donkey into Jerusalem because he was tired. He chose a donkey because, well, he wanted his arrival to create a buzz of excitement. This is a deliberate in, a move on Jesus' part, that his entrance into Jerusalem is, in fact, an act of revelation. He is, at this moment, revealing himself to be far more than just this prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, far more than the carpenter's son from Nazareth. But then, in fact, what you have in this entrance into Jerusalem is very much like a royal procession of a king. If you were to go back into the Old Testament, into, I think it's the, uh, the, the first Kings, uh, you'll find there in first Kings 1 and 2, that when David was about to die and he wanted to pass the throne on to his son Solomon, in order to establish and affirm that Solomon was indeed his choice and God's anointed king of Israel, 
he tells his, uh, his court to fetch his mule, David's royal mule, and put Solomon on it and lead Solomon in procession and announcing to everyone involved that this is in fact God's anointed king. So on Palm Sunday, when Jesus enters Jerusalem on this donkey, the, the, the foal, if you will, of, of the donkey, uh, he is doing that to let everyone know that he is in fact the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Caesar may have his throne in Rome. Other kings, Herod may have his throne in Jerusalem. Other kings may have their thrones, but there is only one King of Kings, one Lord of Lords. And Jesus has come to, his, to announce that now publicly. But he does so, the text tells us, by riding on the, the colt of a donkey. That he reveals himself in this manner as not just any king, but the humble king. That unlike Solomon, Jesus didn't enter Jerusalem to ascend a throne or claim a crown, but he came to lay down his life. He didn't enter Jerusalem to even lead an insurrection. He didn't come to terrorize. He didn't come to conquer. He didn't come to enslave. He came, rather, to offer himself as the atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. He rode a donkey, and really, Mark tells us in his gospel, he chooses an animal on which no one had ever sat. There's a significance in this, because in the ancient world, the way that you would establish and affirm a covenant was by offering in sacrifice an animal that had never had a rider, an animal that was, in fact, pure and undefiled. So Jesus, the, the, again... The greater reality behind Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is that he is riding an animal that is used in sacrifice to ratify and bring into effect the covenant. So here there is this picture of the one who will bear the sins of the world riding an animal that is used for the very fact of establishing a covenant so that the one who is riding him is in fact the one who will establish a greater covenant, a more permanent covenant that will be for all time. He chose a donkey as well because a donkey is a, is a beast of burden. What do people use donkeys for but to carry burdens that they themselves cannot carry? So here comes Jesus riding a beast of burden as himself the ultimate burden bearer. The one who comes not to wear a crown but to carry a cross, to take upon himself the very burdens of a king. There's no doubt, going back to uh, Second Kings, there's no doubt that a donkey is a, a royal beast as well, and so that the donkey carries the king. And if you were to think back far enough in Matthew's gospel, what did Mary ride into Bethlehem in order to give birth to Christ? But she rode a donkey. She was bearing the king on an animal meant to bear kings. So there's this these, these stories, these, these layers to this incident that we can overlook simply because it's so familiar to us. There is, there is much more being said here by Jesus' act in riding a donkey into Jerusalem than we initially can understand without unknowing our Old Testament, without knowing our Old Testament history. So here Jesus comes on an animal signifying peace as the Prince of Peace the one who comes to establish peace between God and humanity by being himself the burden bearer for our sins. 
And so he comes, does Jesus, humble and mounted on a donkey as the king of kings, as a burden bearer for our sins, as the prince of peace who brings peace between God and us and thereby establishing peace between all peoples through faith and trust in him. But it's obvious this is not what the crowd sees. And it's obvious this is even what the disciples see as well. They lavish high praise upon Jesus. They don't worship him as the humble king. They cheer him because they believe he is the long-expected Messiah, that he is the long-expected warrior king, much like King David. And so, blinded by their vision of what they wanted Jesus to be, they didn't see the donkey. They only saw what they wanted to see. They only saw what they, in their hearts, needed to see. But a warrior doesn't ride a donkey. A warrior rides a, a horse, a war horse, one that is trained for battle, equipped to do that. The crowd expected Jesus to be their champion, to be their avenger. He didn't have an infinity glove, but they were expecting that kind of demonstration from him. They didn't expect that he would do the unthinkable. They expected that he would kill for them. They did not expect that he would die for them. They didn't see the donkey. And because they didn't see the donkey, they didn't see the greater reality behind God's plan. There's another image here that we need to be aware of that helps get the sort of the drama of the moment in terms of Jesus coming. When when God delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai in the wilderness, he calls Moses up to the mountain. And then God descends on that mountain. If you read it in Exodus 19 and 20, God descends on Mount Sinai in great darkness and in fire with thunderings and lightnings so loud that if you remember the thunder last night, it shook the very foundations of the mountain and it terrified the people. When God gave the law, there was this foreboding sense, thunder and lightning and fire and clouds of thick darkness. But yet when Jesus comes, when he descends from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, he comes in broad daylight. He descends from the Mount of Olives, as the hymn writer tells us, to hush the law's loud thunder. He descends, as Newton says in his great hymn, to quench Mount Sinai's flame. This is the gospel. He comes to inaugurate the end of the law fulfilled in his obedience and to establish and inaugurate for all time the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. That those whom the law would condemn... Jesus came to redeem. As John reminded us, Pastor John reminded us in our call to worship, the high king of heaven, the one whom Isaiah describes as dwelling in the high and holy place, what does he do? He descends to our level. Not as he descended on Sinai with clouds and thick darkness and fire and thunders and light, but he descends to our level by taking on our flesh by coming to us humble and mounted on a donkey. The word of God, the word who is God, takes on our flesh 
is weak as we are weak, yet has a strength that is divine and unimpeachable. That the holy, sinless Son of God comes riding, the gentle and lowly Son of David. He enters Jerusalem to become what he is, which is the suffering Savior. Again, he didn't enter Jerusalem to claim a throne, but to bear the cross. He didn't come to kill his enemies, but to let them kill him in their place as their substitute for their sins. The Apostle Paul captures the, the drama of this moment when he writes in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, describing Jesus that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. So if Palm Sunday teaches us anything, it's that God doesn't wait for us to come to him. To be specific, God the Son doesn't wait for us to come to him. He comes to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes not as God descends on Mount Sinai, but he comes to us by living the life that we could never live and dying the death that we deserved. The Palm Sunday is about Jesus Christ coming to earth to take up our sins and carry them to the cross so that our sins can be forgiven and we, by faith in him, can become citizens of the kingdom of God. So the question then becomes this familiar story that is well known to us. What do you see when you look at Jesus? Who do you see when you look at Jesus? How do you expect him to approach you? How do you expect him to enter into your life? Do you see him as some do, as this warrior king, this mean and angry God who is filled with wrath and vengeance against you? Or do you see him as he is presented here in the Gospel of Matthew, as this humble king, the son of God, the son of David, the son of man, the suffering servant who dies in our place for our sin that we might by faith in him be granted eternal life and entrance to the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus didn't come to conquer and to kill. He came to suffer and to die. He came to submit himself to death on a cross to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the greater reality behind the events of this day. It's about Jesus revealing himself ultimately, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why the significance of him riding a donkey that had never been ridden before, a donkey that would be used in ancient times as a means of sacrifice to ratify a covenant. So Jesus comes to ratify, to put into effect, finally and forever, a greater covenant than the one that God established with Moses to fulfill that covenant and in its place, Give us one that is permanent and filled with grace. So Jesus comes riding on a donkey, and the crowd recognizes this, and they worship him the right way, but they did it for the wrong reason. You pick up the narrative in verse 6 where Matthew tells us, the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. 
he sat on their cloaks, not on the donkey and the colt. He only sat on one animal. He sat on their cloaks. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, of the many reasons that Matthew wrote his gospel, the main reason is this, that he wanted by his gospel to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus is in fact the promised Messiah, the son of God, the son of David, the son of man, Emmanuel or God with us. There is a, 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 a Bible scholar named D.R. Catchpole. I, I love the, the, the British scholars. Their last names are just amazing. Not many scholars named Malanga. Right? It's hard to put initials in front of that. Right? D.R. Catchpole. And he, he makes a very interesting observation, does Mr. Catchpole. He says that the way that Jesus entered Jerusalem fits the pattern of accounts in Jewish literature of the entrance into the city by a hero figure who has previously achieved his triumph. And he lays out five elements to this pattern. That the hero enters the city of Jerusalem after having achieved a great victory. That he would enter the city with great pomp and ceremony. That he would be greeted with applause and cheers and appeals to God. Does this sound familiar? That he would enter the temple. And that while in the temple, he would perform an act of worship, either positively through offering a sacrifice or negatively through an act of cleansing. Now you apply that if we work, like the old David Ledman show, if we work backwards from five to one, our top five, Jesus does enter the temple to perform an act of worship. Not an act of cleansing, not of himself, but a cleansing of the temple. Because that's immediately what happens in Matthew's gospel. As soon as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he goes immediately to the temple and he cleanses it. He throws out all of the money changers. He throws out all of those who had made his father's house a den of thieves and robbers. That takes care of elements five and four. His entrance is greeted with applause and cheers and acclaims and appeals to God. Hosanna in the highest. Save us. Or as some would even say, God save the Son of Man. God save Emmanuel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he enters with great pomp and ceremony. But it's the first one that really strikes the irony of the moment. That the hero would enter the city after having achieved a great victory. Jesus hasn't yet risen from the dead hasn't yet been crucified, hasn't yet ascended into glory, and yet he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a war horse to declare war, but a donkey to signify, folks, the battle that you didn't even know is taking place, the battle is over, and I am the victor, and I am the champion. So even before the events of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Resurrection Sunday, Jesus is letting it, know, let it be known, I am the King of kings, I am the Lord of lords, I am the great and victorious King who has conquered. Not Rome, because your enemy is greater and more fearsome than Rome. I have come to conquer death. Because the only thing that Rome has over you 
The only means by which Rome can enforce their rule and authority over you is to threaten you with death. And I have come to use their weapon against them by dying in your place and rising from the dead so that you no longer need to fear them, but now you can hope in the promise of eternal life through faith in me. So he comes riding on a donkey. Oh, we love to talk about, and he is humble and meek and mild. That's one element of the picture here. But the greater reality behind the plan is that he has already conquered. He has already defeated. He has already overcome. He has already destroyed death as the King of kings, the Lord of lives, Lord of lords, and the suffering servant. And this pattern, this is why, without even knowing it, without even knowing all of that, this is why the crowd cheers them on. They spread their cloaks on the road. They cut palm branches. They, they, if you will, lay out the red carpet for Jesus. They acknowledge his majesty and his authority by shouting Hosanna. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because they expected him. that This was it. This was the moment. His disciples who had been following him for three years. Building, building, building their anticipation. This is it. This is now what's going to happen. He's going to rally the troops. He's going to call everyone to attention. And we're finally going to overthrow Rome and, and inaugurate the golden age of a new Israel. But that's not why he came. They welcomed him thinking he was the promised Messiah king, the warrior king, but he wasn't. They did the right thing by worshiping Jesus, but they did it for the wrong reason. They had not the slightest clue of the greater reality of God's plan of salvation behind these events. You can say in many ways that the crowd regarded and treated Jesus as a blank canvas onto which they could project all of their hopes, all of their dreams, all of their desires. Someone who would make all their dreams come true. But there was a gap, the size of the Grand Canyon between their expectations and the greater reality of God's plan of salvation. When you think about it, there's always a gap between our expectation of what God should do, what God would do, what God has to do, and what God ultimately does. Because he's not created in our image and likeness. He is not a God like us. And when we begin to feel anxious or fearful, when we begin to get angry at God, why are we doing that? It's because God is not acting in a way that we think he should act for our benefit. God ultimately does act for our benefit. But it's always through doing what he chooses to do that supersedes all of that. The crowd worshipped Jesus because they believed he was this warrior king. And here's the, here's the paradox. The reality of Jesus' identity, the reality of Jesus' mission was worse than they imagined. But it was better than they could have hoped for. This is why when Paul would write to the Corinthians later on, the Jews find the cross a stumbling block because who, who could ever believe in a crucified Messiah. 
This is why the Greeks, Gentiles, would find it such foolishness. What kind of God allows himself to be killed by mere mortals? But in fact, the greater reality of God's plan supersedes how we think he should behave, how, what we think he should do. Sometimes we can worship Jesus the right way, but we worship him for the wrong reason. Because he is not a, a, a blank canvas onto which we could project our hopes, our dreams, and our desires. That whatever image that we have or create of Jesus, we have to, have, we have to be prepared that he will destroy those idols. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, he's not a tame lion. He was never meant to be. Even though Jesus, the writer of the Hebrews tells us, even though Jesus was made like us in every respect, he is not like us in this respect. That only Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. Only Jesus is sinless. And only Jesus can bear the title Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David. Savior. This is why Jesus is more than just the prophet from the Nazareth, from Nazareth in Galilee. Because when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, literally quaking. Uh, I, just the whole city was shaking at its very core. And they asked, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entrance created an earthquake of a reaction in the city. And seeing the crowd and, and, and hearing the shouts of worship, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they wonder what all the commotion is about. They wanted to know the reason for this loud and boisterous celebration. So they asked, well, who could cause this stir? Who is this? It's a question that we read in Psalm 24. Who is this king of glory? It's a question that the crowd asks, motivated more by consternation than it is curiosity. They're aggravated. This is like waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning after, after from a sound sleep because your neighbor has decided to play his boombox. Boom, 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 boom. Who's doing that? Who is making all this noise, this multiplicity of sound? What's all the fuss about? And the crowd answers, well, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. But here's the thing. It's not as if the people of Jerusalem didn't know who Jesus was. I mean, he'd done miracles there. He'd been in there. He preached. You go to John 7, and Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast, and he says, you know, everyone who believes what I say, out of him will come streams of living water. So they know who Jesus is. They're just surprised that he's getting this kind of reception now. And the crowd says he's this prophet, but no prophet ever received this kind of welcome. No prophet was ever greeted like this. Only kings are greeted like this. The city of Jerusalem sees Jesus, but they didn't see him. The crowd see Jesus, but they didn't see him. The disciples see Jesus, but they didn't see him. They didn't see the donkey. They didn't see the greater reality of God's plan of salvation. Which is why, if you go back a few verses ahead of Jesus' entrance in Jerusalem, go back to the end of chapter 20 in Mark's Gospel, it's no coincidence that before Jesus enters Jerusalem, he heals two blind men outside the city of Jericho. There's another irony and symbolism taking place in this healing as well. 
the healing tells us at least two things. First, that, that Jesus will always take time to help those in need. I mean, just imagine sort of the, the presidential motorcade driving through the streets of Manhattan and out the window of his limousine, the president sees a couple of homeless people. And he's gone his way to make a speech at the United Nations, some great peace plan that he's going to propose. But he sees these homeless people and he says, stop the car. And he gets out and he helps them. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't say, I can understand that you're blind and I know that that must be a ter terrible inconvenience for you. Can't see, begging, can't really go to temple because you're damaged. But you know, I've got bigger plans. I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got... He doesn't do that. We go to Jesus in prayer. He never tells us, okay, go. He doesn't, what can I do for you? He's always attentive to our needs. He's always listening and caring and concerning. But there's another reason why Jesus heals, and that goes along the lines of a metaphor. Because the crowd saw Jesus but didn't see him, because the city saw Jesus but didn't see him, because the disciples saw Jesus but didn't see him, until Jesus opens our eyes to really who he is, we will never see him as he is. Because not all blindness is physical. Sin blinds us to the reality of the true character of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And only Jesus, through the power and work of the Holy Spirit, can open the eyes of those born spiritually blind to see him as the humble king, the son of David, the son of God, the son of man, Emmanuel, God with us, the Savior, who is Lord and King. So what do you see when you see Jesus? Do you see that humble king? Do you see the suffering savior who invites you to follow him on his terms? Or do you see a blank canvas onto which you project your dreams, your hopes, your aspirations? Do you see Jesus for who he really is? Or is he someone that we have created in our own image and likeness? Someone who agrees with our politics. Someone who agrees with our philosophy of life. Someone who agrees with our outlook on things. Do we have a Jesus like that? Because if we do, that's an idol. And some people want to see Jesus as a great moral teacher only. Others want to see him as the ultimate social justice warrior Others see him as a, a political rebel, a king who came to establish his throne and drain the swamp. But in truth, Jesus is at the same time both none and more than any of those things. Yep, he's a great moral teacher, but he's more than that. He isn't someone who comes to establish justice, but he's much more than that. He is certainly one who is the one who brings about uh, political reform through changed lives. But he's so much more than that. Remember, he is not a tame lion. He will not be domesticated. He is the humble king. He is the Messiah. 
We won't understand Palm Sunday until we see Jesus for who he really is. As the son of God, the son of David, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Because behind every event, there is a greater reality of God's plan of salvation. Luke tells us in his gospel, and now I'm moving toward the the conclusion. Luke tells us in his gospel that before Jesus entered Jerusalem, he stopped at the Mount of Olives and he wept. He tells us, says Luke in chapter 19, and when he drew near the city and saw it, he wept over it. And he said, speaking of Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but you would not. And now they are hidden from your eyes. He wept over Jerusalem, did Jesus, because he didn't weep for himself. These were not tears of joy. He wept for Jerusalem. He wept for every man, woman, and child living in it. He wept over their failure to know the things that make for peace. He is the thing, the person that makes for peace. He wept because the things that make for peace were hidden from their eyes because of their sin and unwillingness to see him as anything more than their own creation. He wept because of their hardness of heart, for the lack of repentance and for the lack of faith. He wept because they could not see behind every plan or everything that happens, there is a greater reality of God's plan of salvation. We come to Palm Sunday, a story so familiar. In some churches, the little kids walk around the sanctuary with palm branches, you know, waving them. And we get caught up in the, in the sort of the joy of that, and it should be a joyous day. But we, we kind of minimize the importance of the day by limiting it to only that. We know that tradition assigns to Palm Sunday the title, The Triumphal Entry of Jesus. We call it the triumphal entry because on Palm Sunday, the crowd worshiped Jesus as the king of glory. But we know that by Friday, it would be a whole different story. But that would not be the end of the story. We know that because Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem, signifying and announcing that no matter what is about to happen, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He didn't enter Jerusalem to conquer Rome, to bring about the golden age of Israel. He entered Jerusalem to conquer sin and death, to bring about the golden age of grace under the new covenant. He didn't enter Jerusalem to ascend a throne or claim a crown, but to bear a cross and wear a crown of thorns. He entered Jerusalem on Sunday, knowing full well what would happen on Friday. And he endured what happened on Friday because his eyes were fixed on what he knew would happen on Sunday. So when Jesus enters into our lives, how do we see him? What do we see? Do we see him created in our image or by God's grace are our eyes open to see the greater reality of God's plan of salvation? You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the almighty and everlasting God, and you have shown, you have declared, you have revealed to us your tender love, 
You have sent our Savior, your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our flesh, to suffer death upon the cross, that everyone should follow not only the example of his great humility, but that everyone should follow him by faith, trusting in his sacrifice for our sins. And so we pray that by your mercy, you would grant that we would both follow his example of patience and of faithfulness to you, that we ourselves might be faithful followers, partakers not only of his divine nature by faith, but also, Lord, in reality, and ultimately partakers of his great and glorious resurrection. This we ask and pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.